a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the KSL Greenhouse Show. Marina is dashing back in here, and we're all dashing back to our minds. I'm here. Here we go. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Number to call with your questions, 801-575-8255. You can text us at 57500. Next listener wants to know, guys, is it possible to grow sweet potatoes in Cache Valley? And if so, do you need to add anything specific to the soil? Well, I've, I ran a community garden up in Cache Valley for a number of years, and it was on the East Bench. So it was a little warmer, but we had gardeners successfully growing short-season sweet potatoes. I believe they were growing Georgia Jet. There are some other even shorter-season ones. What I'd recommend is getting on Johnny's Seeds uh, website, Johnny Seeds, and finding a sweet potato called Mahon, M-A-H-O-N. This is a 90-day sweet potato that we grew in Spanish Fork this year that we think off 30 plants got 50 pounds which is pretty good for Utah. If we were in Louisiana where we had a 230-day growing season, we would have doubled that at least. But for Utah, that was really good. And so as long as you live in downtown Logan or one of the bench areas, I think they would be fine with short season. Okay. Maria Shaleos, Tom Bettis, Michael Karen with you this morning. Number to call with your questions, 801-575-8255. You can also text us your questions at 57500. Stephen is on the line in West Jordan. Good morning, Stephen. What is your question? I just bought a Christmas cactus, and I need to know how to take care of it. Okay. So Christmas cactus is pr- actually pretty easy to take care of. Uh, it is a succulent, so that that means it's it's grown in areas where it, it it gets seasonal moisture. So it's it's normally used to you know storing moisture in its leaves, and so it can it can tolerate some substantial drying of the soil, and it will be just fine. Um, it does wilt though if the soil gets too dry or rem- or stays dry for too long, but. They don't really need a whole lot. Um, the most problems that people have with them is they overwater them, and, and it's best to just let the soil dry out between between waterings to, to a certain extent so where the soil changes to a more of a light brown color. A lot of people ask... It, oh, go ahead. Does it need sunlight? Yeah, they need fairly bright light. They can handle lower light levels if you don't expect them to bloom. So if you want them to bloom, which they normally bloom, naturally bloom this time of year when the days are shorter, then, then they, they need uh, pretty substantial light. So even, even an east-facing window where they're getting several fairly direct hours of sun a day is usually enough to get a very respectable uh, bloom show out of them. Yeah, and so okay. if that window also gets cold at night, so around 50, 55 degrees, 
you don't want the cactus touching the window, but in close proximity. That cold every night will also induce the blooms. And so you'll need to leave it there for six to eight weeks. And once you start to see blooms come, flip it 180 degrees so you're spinning it. And you can keep some of the newer varieties blooming all winter. Yeah. But if they touch the cold window, then the, the blossoms that are forming um, where they are touching the window usually just fall off. Okay. All righty. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to love it. I love my Christmas cactus, my holiday cactus. Mine has been in bloom for, what, a couple of weeks now? You should see it now. It's in yes. just full bloom. I actually shot a short video last week on care of Christmas cactus. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I was going to post it in another week or so. Maybe we'll put it up sooner than later. Caitlin and Carlos, who are regular video people, are both out. So I had to post one on my own, and it was oh, interesting. Oh, man. I'm so, sure you did. You always you've had some really nice yes. videos so that you posted on we, your. I own. put one up on Poinsettia Care yesterday. I, that is on Instagram and Facebook. I didn't know how to put it up on YouTube, so we'll put the Poinsettia one or the, excuse me the Christmas cactus one up within a few days. All right, number to call with your questions eight zero one five seven five eight two five five. You can text us five seven five zero zero. Phone lines are open right now, uh, Mike. I want to talk to you more about all the work that you're doing with grapes uh, down in Utah County. So tell your work. You said you work with a variety of growers. Uh, describe exactly what you're doing. So I have a at in Utah County uh, uh, around the show barn at Thanksgiving Point there in Lehigh. Uh, gosh, eight years ago, probably eight years ago, we started. Uh, variety trial there with grapes. We have about 22 varieties of grapes in there right now. <clears throat> and so we took out the existing vineyard that was there, which, was, which wasn't which um, was really managed per se as a vineyard. And uh, there was uh, two or three varieties of grapes in there, Concords and some others. We ripped all that out and, and put in this trial where we're trialing um, some of the old standbys. We do have Concord in there just as a comparison, but a lot of the newer hybrids that have come out and a few of the, of the more... Uh, common uh, wine grapes and some of the new wine grapes as well that have come out that are hybrids that are more cold hardy. And then and that, that for me dovetailed into uh, working with uh, the, the very young wine grape industry in Southern Utah. So there's uh, five, five fairly large growers. Well, I say large, large in acreage for, for wine grapes uh, in Southern Utah. So in Washington County. And so I go down there several times a year and and work with them on crop management, fertilizers, um, disease issues, those kinds of things, weed management. And then um, we also have uh, some studies going on with those that are where we're looking at water use in for, for grapes in Utah and how it differs from, say, California and, and other regions where we're higher in elevation, more light levels, those kinds of things. And so at Thanksgiving Point, though, what we're doing there is we're we're, we're mainly just looking at uh, harvest dates. When you know when do we harvest the grapes here in Utah? These different varieties. Uh, what's the sugar content when we harvest them? And uh, first of all, are they even winter hardy here? There's a lot of varieties on the market, and so we're trying to, to test a reasonable sample of those to see, you know, which which groups or which which, which ones tend to behave the best for us. So earlier in the show, you were talking about pests and how they impact grapes and how they can have some problems. And there was a person asking about three different varieties. Is it best if you're going to plant different grapes to plant different varieties of grapes rather than one type as far as um, kind of managing the microenvironment and keeping pests away? Uh, there doesn't seem to 
to really be any research that has talked about that. I don't. I don't think that there's any benefit to that. They're they're all so closely related and have a lot of the same parental genetics. Um, that there's probably not any advantage, at least not that we know of, to having different kinds of grapes there for pest and disease management purposes. But there are a lot of differences genetically in in certain cultivars. So, for example, you know the the European grapes, the Vitus vinifera grapes, as a group, tend to be pretty susceptible to d- diseases like powdery mildew and downy mildew, and uh, and others, black rot and things. And so, with the the American genetics from the grapes, the native to North America that they're working in there, um, tend tend to bring a lot more disease resistance or reduce the susceptibility to those kind of diseases. And so then in Utah, where we have a dry climate, um, add add to the to the factor those conditions, and we t- we tend to have um, a pretty low incidence of disease on grapes in Utah. So one thing I like about growing several varieties together is that they ripen at different times. Yeah. You know, I I see people, and they'll tell me it was like I have three hundred row feet of Concord grapes. And then my first thought is, have you taken to drinking? Because harvesting that many grapes all at once to process is a lot of work. And I I say that very sarcastically. I'm not encouraging anybody. But they're especially if you're using them for eating, making raisins, for juice, there's no reason that you should have all the same variety. Why not plant three or four varieties that ripen a week apart and save yourself some problems as far as trying to get them all in at once. And if you're going to make juice and want to freeze them or want to juice them, freeze the early ones and then just pull them out and put them in the juicer later. So there are some advantages to growing these different varieties. So grapes don't need another variety to pollinate. They're self-pollinating. That's pretty much the case um, with, with all current modern grape varieties. They don't need another plant there to pollinate them. Um, but like Tom said, the the difference in ripening times can can really extend the season. I've also found, though, with with grapes at my house and with the the research trial, that um, a lot of grapes will you can they can they can hang on the vine for quite a long time and still be good. Like I was harvesting Jupiter right up until we basically got frost because I didn't get them all cleaned off. And yeah, they get a little softer and you know they start to dry out a little bit, and you'll even have some forming raisins there on the vine. But they're actually still really good, and they'll tend to sweeten up even a little bit more. If you let them hang, even though they're kind of past peak ripeness and peak flavor. Before we go to break, you actually made raisins. I did. Of several varieties. Yeah, it was fun. I'd never done it before. And you know how they make raisins in California, for example, is they they, they, they cut the clusters of fruit off and they lay it on pieces Usually of paper. Usually Thompson seedless. Yeah, most of them are. And they lay them on paper right in between the rows and they let them dry in the sun. It usually takes them two weeks or so to dry out in the sun. Well... The problem doing that in Utah is that by the time most of our grapes are becoming ripe, we're near the end of the season. We don't have those warm, hot, sunny days to let those grapes dry out. And so um, I actually just put them in, in a little greenhouse, just close the greenhouse up, doesn't let it vent. And um, it took about a month, and I started to get to get raisins. And I, I've had some varieties, some of the larger fruited varieties that did, haven't raisin very well. They're, they're just going to take a lot more heat to dry out because there's just so much water in those grapes. But uh, actually, a lot of varieties make really good raisins. Of course, I like the seedless ones, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
So you laid them, them out on paper, any particular I kind actually of paper? just had what a wire mesh on the table. Oh, okay. On the little tables on the sides of the Left them greenhouse. in the bunch? Yep. Okay. Yep, we just let them dry out. And then uh, what I did was I, I, I took sections of them out of the greenhouse and put them in a colander and I washed them three or four times. And this is what they do commercially. They, they take them after they're dry and they, they wash them. After several, they're dry? After they're dry. And they wash all the, you know, the dirt and things off well, of them and the them- insects. Well, though they rehydrate, they don't. Then they then they just dry out again, and that's what I did with mine. I, I washed them in a colander, rinsed off the dirt, real good. I did that three or four times, and then kind of massaged them a little bit to get the the stems to come off, and the stems came off pretty well. And uh, then I I actually just laid them out um, on a towel on the counter and let them dry for a couple of days, and then I've just been storing them in gallon Ziploc bags. So, I, in fact, I, for even a short time. I left one. I left one group just in the big colander and set it out on my back patio, which faces south. Mm-hmm. Uh, for several days, it dried out just fine, and I put them in the Ziploc bag. All right. We need to take a break. We'll come back with your calls and questions. Phone lines are open eight zero one five seven five eight two five five. You can text us five seven five zero zero. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse. How could you possibly interrupt that voice? And I hope you're having a happy holiday season. Maria Shaleos, Tan Bettis, Mike Karen with you this morning. We are taking your calls, 801-575-8255. You can text us at 57500. Uh, a reminder that we do have pregame coverage of the KS of the uh BYU New Mexico Bowl is starting at noon today, and that pregame coverage is sponsored by Andy's Neighborhood Market in Kearns. Let's get back to our phone lines. We have Jay who is waiting in Murray. Good morning, Jay. What is your question? Yeah, I've actually got a two-part. You know, my first one is I heard you talking about grapes as I just turned the radio on. Mm-hmm. I never got them cut back. Is there? Can I go out now and cut the vines back, 
Or no. do I wait spring? <laughs> when do I do it? So you, uh, we typically try to prune grapes as late as possible. So I usually don't prune my grapes until well into April. And the reason for that okay. is because they, they, there's always going to be – well, pruning them tends to stimulate um, them to push bud Gross. a little bit earlier. And we want to delay that because they're so sensitive to late spring frost. So – uh, a lot of growers will actually go in and do a double prune. They'll go in and do a, ba- a first pruning to clean up the major mess of vines on the wire, and then they'll wait a few weeks and go back in and do a final pruning um, after there's less risk of those really cold temperatures. So about mid-April, then go yeah. in and yeah, cut them back. Before that. And they'll bleed. They'll bleed. You know, they'll weep a lot of sap. Yeah. It's not harmful at all. Okay. So just go in and do it and don't worry about it. And- yep. Perfect. But don't do it now, and I don't need, and I didn't need to do it in the fall because I knew a lot of people that tell me to do it in the fall. No, never so do it in the fall. Ne- never prune any woody plant in Utah in, in, in these cold climates in in the fall. Okay, perfect. All right, and then my second question is: I didn't get my garden pulled out and taken care of. Can I just leave it until it all under? Yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. You I, may have trouble with hurt. things like the vines; they'll dry out and get really ropey. Uh, but a lot of times the leaves will have already disintegrated and you can just get the vines out real easy. Because I'd heard that I need to pull all that stuff out because if it gets uh, moist and it creates mold and that can cause like spider, well, is it that spider would be mite or any organic matter. Like it doesn't, it isn't exclusive to your garden stuff. And as long as your plants weren't diseased, you know, you're, you're okay to just till it under. Yeah, and that's one that I worry about because I had some beans that were, I want to say, white. They had like white film on them, and they yeah. started to go bad. Battery melted. That's airborne, so it won't really matter anyway. That stuff's around anyway. I mean, you could, yeah, maybe okay. reduce the inoculum a little bit by cleaning up the debris, but uh, th- that's more varietal. And powdery mildew diseases are very host specific. So the ones that were affecting your Beans won't be the same powdery mildew species that would affect your squash or your grapes or your apple tree and tomatoes and stuff right, like that. Exactly. Okay, they're 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 quite host specific. So, uh, yeah, cleaning up debris can help, but if you haven't done it yet, that doesn't mean you can't try and have a garden just fine next year. So just till it under and go on with life. Yep, got it. All right, Jay. All thanks right. for your call today. Thank you so much. You yep. bet. Uh, next listener says they received a Concord grape transplant earlier this summer. When is the best time to plant? How deep and should they cut off the new growth? Uh, it's currently in their garage. So planting grapes, uh, they are sensitive to being planted too, too deep uh, to some extent. So I generally try and plant them at the same level they were planted at the nursery. And you can usually see the soil line and you'll see the roots will have developed where they're going to develop in relationship to the surface of the soil. And we need to try to preserve that as best as we can when planting them. So um, as far as uh, timing, uh, if it's a containerized plant and and it's been subjected to the outdoor elements and it's kind of adjusted along with the, the rest of the landscape plants, then you can plant them, like from a container, you can plant them pretty much whenever the ground isn't frozen. So there's not as many restrictions on that. So fall's a good time, spring's a good time. The middle of the summer you know, can also be done, but they're, they're going to have to be more careful about watering and things like that because of the heat stress. So they couldn't plant them now unless they have 
soil that's not frozen. Well, and if it's coming out of a garage right now, it's not probably going to be as hardy as like like as adjusted to cold temperatures as it would be if it was planted outside. So if they take it out of their garage now and put it outside, yeah, it probably is going to die back more or be killed outright. So I would wait until April to plant it. Okay. Uh, next listener is in Midway. They have a lot of snow this year. Uh, they did a late fall lawn fertilizing. How early in the spring should they fertilize, Tom? Mother's Day. You know, if, if they need to get a pre-emergent down, and those are usually bundled with fertilizer, then they could get it down in from Midway, late mid to late April. But otherwise, because they put the fall fertilization down, if the lawn doesn't have a lot of weeds, I would wait until Mother's Day. Uh, next listener says um, they have 50 tulip bulbs that didn't get planted this fall. They're in their garage starting to sprout. Shall they, should they plant them in a bucket? They don't particularly want to do that, uh, or will they be okay until spring? So they won't be okay until spring. So they're, they're, they're growing and they're going to flower uh, because they've gotten – well, they're growing. I don't know if they'll flower. It depends on if they've gotten the right cold treatment or not. So at this point, um, if, if – if these spring flowering bulbs aren't planted in the fall and in early enough in the fall where the roots will form from the bulbs in the overwinter with a rooted bulb, uh, if they're not planted early enough for that, which is usually mid-October, maybe some years we can push it to late October, um, then the, if you plant them later than that, they'll, they'll leaf out, but they won't flower and they usually just wither up and die because they don't have a root system. So at this point, your best option is to do what's called forcing and that is to actually just bring them inside, plant them in a little pot, bring them inside, let them flower. You'll enjoy them. And then after they flower, throw them away. Okay, we need to break. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.